welcome back to The Law. I'm DK Williams, and this is episode 38. We're going to talk about Shank versus the United States. This is a 1919 case, and it was overturned in 1969. So why am I talking about a case that was overruled? Because uneducated folks keep quoting this 1919 case like it means something. People on TV, on radio, on the internet, of course. So many people think they're being profound when they say this, when they paraphrase something that was in this Supreme Court case written by Oliver Wendell Holmes, very respected jurist, but no man is a deity. We all get stuff wrong. And this one was clearly wrong. And this one, basically, Holmes realized it over the uh, next several cases that dealt with First Amendment issues. And he never explicitly said he was wrong, but he started using completely different rationale. And we'll get into these details. These people are not being educated when they quote this. And I don't want y'all to be that guy because I care. Now, what's the saying? I guarantee you've heard this probably in the last week. Whenever free speech comes up, and it comes up a lot these days from both the progressives, and I'm using air quotes, who want to shut down speakers on college campuses and conservatives. For some reason, Candace Owens brought up wanting to kick people out of the country if they burned a flag. She'd give them a year, but she'd kick them out. So the First Amendment is always being attacked from some direction, sometimes all directions. So this is the saying that you will hear, you've probably heard. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater. The paraphrase of Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes in this chink case from 1919, dealing with the First Amendment, that has zero legal significance since at least the past half century when it was overturned by Brandenburg v. Ohio in 1969. We'll get into all of that, but as always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. And remember, follow me on social media, Twitter at BlueCarp, and on Facebook.com slash BlueCarp, and the Facebook page for this podcast, which is The Law with D.K. Williams. Love to hear from you. And if you're so inclined, donate at paypal.me slash Williams. And wherever you may be listening, if you wouldn't mind, like it, comment, subscribe, share, rate it, all of that. It helps us get the podcast seen in more places. Who are the named participants in this case? So we know Shank is the first name on it. That is Charles T. Shank. And there was also a second defendant, Elizabeth Bear, B-A-E-R. But she's second, so as you guys know, nobody knows her name. We just know Shank. Now, this case was heard during World War One. Both Charles Shank and Elizabeth Bear were members of the Executive Committee of the Socialist Party in Philadelphia. And Shank was General Secretary. I guess that made him the boss. Anyway, he was an officer. The United States, of course, is the United States. And since this was a federal criminal statute, the United States is a party. So the Supreme Court tally in this one, this one was unanimous, despite being horrible. And like I said, thankfully it's been overruled. But let's look at the roster sheet for the 1919 Supreme Court bench that heard this case. The famous Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote the opinion. He was nominated by Teddy Roosevelt in 1902. And y'all probably know where he went to law school. Let's all say it together. Harvard. Because, you know, I like to mention the elite Ivy League schools where almost all of Supreme Court justices come from now. It wasn't nearly as bad back here in 1919. And we'll see that as we go through the list. Before he was nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court, he was Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Court. Also on the bench, part of this 9-0 decision, was Chief Justice Edward D. White. He was nominated by Grover Cleveland to the Supreme Court as an Associate Justice in 1894. Then in 1910, he was bumped up to Chief Justice by William Howard Taft. White was U.S. Senator from Louisiana when he joined the court. 
And being from Louisiana, he attended Tulane Law School, not the Ivy League, so that's good. Among the associate justices was Joseph McKenna, nominated by McKinley in 1898. Prior to his appointment to the Supreme Court, he had been U.S. Attorney General. And as far as his law school goes, he didn't go. According to the Federal Judicial Center website, which has got a biography of every federal judge ever at every level, it just says, Red Law, R-E-A-D, Red, which means he didn't go to law school. He read the law and became a lawyer because they didn't used to go to law school. Now it's, for all practical purposes, a requirement, and it's an actual requirement in most states. But Abe Lincoln, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton, all lawyers didn't go to law school. They studied with another lawyer. So McKinley was one of those guys, didn't go to law school, but he made it to the U.S. Supreme Court. Another one of the justices, William R. Day. He was nominated in 03 by Teddy Roosevelt. He had been a circuit judge in federal court before his appointment. Also, did not go to law school. Willis Van Devanter was nominated in 1910 by William Taft. He had been a circuit judge, and he went to the University of Cincinnati Law School. Good. He didn't go to Ivy League. Malin Pitney. I assume it's Malin. It's M-A-H-L-O-N. Malin sounds funny. Pitney, however, however you pronounce his first name, was nominated in 1912 by Taft also. He had been a congressman from New Jersey, and again, no law school was mentioned for him. So I think this Supreme Court was seeing the end of that no law school thing going on. But I've actually got no problem with it. If these guys back then could be in the Supreme Court without going to law school, why is it necessary for everybody to go to law school now? Yeah, if you want to go, great. But if you want to go work for a lawyer and learn, if you can do it, why not? It's more egalitarian. It's not as elite. In any event, another justice in this 9-0 opinion was James C. McReynolds, who was nominated to the court in 1914 by Woodrow Wilson, one of the worst presidents ever. And McReynolds had been a U.S. Attorney General as well. He went to law school at the University of Virginia. Louis Brandeis, also on this bench, was appointed in 1916, also by one of the worst presidents ever, Woodrow Wilson. Now, he went to Harvard Law, but sometimes I'll stumble across an interesting quote about a justice, or sometimes from the justice. But in this case, William Douglas, who became a Supreme Court justice later on, FDR appointed him later, had this to say about Louis Brandeis. Quote, Brandeis was a militant crusader for social justice, whoever his opponent might be. He was dangerous not only because of his brilliance, his arithmetic, his courage. He was dangerous because he was incorruptible, and the fears of the establishment were greater because Brandeis was the first Jew to be named to the court, end quote. So I think it's interesting that even in 1916, when he was nominated and there was contentiousness about it, that's what Douglas is referring to, the fact that he was a Jew was part of the, part of the opposition, but Douglas talks about fears of the establishment. Um, we still hear that today, don't we? 103 years later, some things don't change that much. Just the names of the people. And sometimes with kids and grandkids, the names don't even change that much. One quick example, we went from George H.W. Bush to George W. Bush. And finally, the last Supreme Court justice in this 9-0 anti-First Amendment case was John H. Clark, who was nominated in 1916 by Wilson also. He had been a federal district court judge. Again, he read for the law. No law school mentioned. So that's your Supreme Court roster for this 1919 case, Shank versus the United States. All right, what are the, the facts that we need to know? And I'm going to paraphrase from Wikipedia because sometimes they actually do a better job of laying out the facts than the court does in its opinion. So Charles Shank, Elizabeth Baer, members of the executive committee of the Socialist Party in Philadelphia. Shank was general secretary. The executive committee authorized and Shank oversaw 
printing and mailing more than 15,000 flyers to men slated for conscription for being drafted during World War I. And this context is important. War creates fear. Fear is definitely under the surface of this opinion. These flyers urged men not to submit to the draft, saying, quote, Do not submit to intimidation. Assert your rights. If you do not assert and support your rights, you are helping to deny or disparage rights, which it is the solemn duty of all citizens and residents of the United States to retain. And it urged men not to comply with the draft on the grounds that military conscription constituted involuntary servitude prohibited by the 13th Amendment. Shank and Bear were convicted in district court of violating the Espionage Act, and that conviction was upheld in this case by the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, people say things a lot worse than that today, without a doubt. So the case has been overruled for good. But people keep referring to this case just because of that one phrase that Holmes mentioned. So as we talk about people use this quote, they use it to, about yelling fire in a crowded theater as an example and a reason why some anti-free speech policy should be put into place. Now, we should ban some of these people from being able to speak at this campus because, you know, hey, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. And it makes just that much sense. I'm going to quote from a 2012 article from The Atlantic, and I've linked to the article in the notes so you can read it, the entire thing. The article is called, It's Time to Stop Using the Fire in a Crowded Theater Quote. And this was seven years ago. And it's written by a guy named Trevor Tim. So this is what Tim mentions. Those who quote Holmes might want to actually read the case. Okay, where have you heard that before? That is my main thing on these deals. And I don't want to beat it into the ground. Having an opinion, you guys can probably recite this along with me, having an opinion about a case you have not read is like having an opinion about a restaurant you've never been to. So Tim's agrees with me. So those who quote Holmes might want to actually read the case where the phrase originated before using it as their main defense. This is Tim's. If they did, they'd realize it was never binding law. And the underlying case, U.S. v. Shank, is not only one of the most odious free speech decisions in the court's history, but was overturned over 40 years ago. Now it's close to 50 years, or it is 50 years. It was overturned in that Brandenburg v. Ohio case. Tim's goes on in his article, First, it's important to note U.S. v. Shank had nothing to do with fires or theaters or false statements. Instead, the court, U.S. Supreme Court, was deciding whether Charles Shank, the Secretary of the Socialist Party of America, he said America, I thought it was of Philadelphia, anyway, whether or not Shank could be convicted under the Espionage Act for writing and distributing a pamphlet that expressed his opposition to the draft during World War I. As the ACLU's Gabe Rockman explains, it did not call for violence. It did not even call for civil disobedience. And as we read, or you know, we've heard, it called for them to assert their rights is what it did. So then we get to uh, the Brandenburg v. Ohio case. I'll let Tim talk about that as well. He says, in 1969, the Supreme Court's decision in Brandenburg v. Ohio effectively overturned Shank and any authority the case still carried. There, the court held that inflammatory speech and even speech advocating violence, remember, Shank didn't advocate violence, so speech advocating violence by members of the Ku Klux Klan is protected under the First Amendment, unless the speech, this is what the Supreme Court said, is directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action. So they completely changed the standard that was put out in Shank, rightfully so. And imminent, which is what the Supreme Court says is now part of the standard of what is not is protected and what's not protected. Imminent means about to happen or immediate, like right now, not next week. It certainly doesn't mean or include mailing out flyers to people who will get them days later and telling them to assert their rights. 
guaranteed by the Constitution if they get drafted. So not only does it have to be imminent, which Shank is not, it's likely to produce that action. So it depends on how persuasive these flyers were. But it doesn't matter because under the Brandenburg Supreme Court ruling, which is the one that is now in effect, that speech has to be inciting immediate lawless action. So for an example, like if you yell, let's go burn down that Starbucks right now. Okay, that's imminent. You're trying to get people to do something unlawful right now. But if you do that to a bunch of nuns, if you yell that to a bunch of nuns in a park eating lunch, they're going to kind of look at you like, are you crazy? Do we need to call the cops? In that case, it's probably not likely to incite them to that act right now. So it's got to be both. You've got to be encouraging or inciting people to do something lawless right now. And it's likely that it will happen. And let's say you've got a violent crowd and they're ready to go break some laws. So they are likely to do something right now, perhaps. And you say to this violent crowd, let's go burn down that Starbucks next week. Okay, that statement is not trying to incite imminent action because you're telling them or asking them to do it next week, not right now. So that's the current setup expressed in 1969 by the Supreme Court in this Brandenburg, the Ohio case. So back to 1919, we got this yelling fire in a crowded theater, inciting a panic, that phrase. And another thing that Tim's points out in his article is, it is what is called dictum, which is a part of the case that's not binding. Sometimes it's an example, sometimes it's a hypothetical, but it's not part of what was at issue in that case. So it's not binding law. Because like he pointed out, the Shank case was not about yelling fire in a crowded theater. It was about mailing flyers to people, encouraging them to assert their constitutional rights. So let's go back to 1919, Shank. We'll start with Holmes' words, writing for the unanimous court, remember. Holmes wrote, this is an indictment in three counts. Federal case, right? Criminal case. The first charge is a conspiracy to violate the Espionage Act of June 15, 1917, by causing and attempting to cause insubordination, whoa, in the military and naval forces of the United States, and to obstruct the recruiting and enlistment service of the United States. When the United States was at war with the German Empire, to wit, that the defendants willfully conspired to have printed and circulated two men who had been called and accepted for military service under the Act of May 1917, a document set forth and alleged to be calculated to cause such insubordination and obstruction. All right, so that's how Holmes describes what these charges are. Holmes goes on. For the unanimous court in this odious Supreme Court decision that was anti-First Amendment, anti-freedom of expression, Holmes says, the count alleges overt acts in pursuance of the conspiracy, ending in the distribution of the document set forth. Lawyers write like that. The second count alleges a conspiracy to commit an offense against the United States to wit, again, lawyers like to use words like that, to use the mails for the transmission of matter declared to be non-mailable by federal statute. The third count charges an unlawful use of the mails for the transmission of the same matter and otherwise as above. The defendants were found guilty on all counts. So that's Holmes laying it out. Of course, the First Amendment was their defense, right? You know the thing that says, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. That part. Well, apparently Holmes and the entire 1919 Supreme Court didn't think it actually meant that. And some of the details, which I find interesting, even if no one else does, taken from the local Socialist Party minutes. So that's where they got a lot of this evidence against Shank and Bear. 
And it reminds me, a quick aside, uh, of a scene from The Wire. Great show. It started, it was on HBO, about drug dealers and society in general in Baltimore. Stringer Bell is the name of one of the characters. He's second in command of this drug-selling ring. And he's also attending business classes because he wants to go to legit. He wants to learn how to operate a business. And selling drugs is a business. It's a pretty big business. So he tries to run his meetings of his drug runners like a business meeting. And one of his runners or street sellers or whatever his official title is, thinks he's going to follow Bell's lead and read somewhere that in an official business meeting, someone takes minutes. So, so this guy thinks Bell's going to be impressed. So he's taking the minutes in this meeting. Bell sees him writing things down. He goes over incredulous and says, you are taking minutes of a criminal blanking conspiracy and grabs the notes away. Somebody might have wanted to say that to the socialists in Philadelphia back then. But then again, they weren't in a criminal conspiracy. But the minutes were used as evidence against them. I mean, they didn't think they were in a criminal conspiracy, right? They thought they were in America, like Randy Marsh. This is America. So someone did keep minutes, apparently goes bare, of this Philadelphia Socialist Party. And during an August 13th, 1917 meeting, there was a resolution to print the 15,000 leaflets. August 20th minute meetings, Shank said he had, or there's a notation that he had obtained the leaflets from a printer and started work addressing envelopes. Oh, the glory of revolution. Addressing envelopes. Now, I bet he had someone else lick them. They didn't have the self-adhesive ones back then, not as far as I know. So I bet you the glorious socialist leader of the party was going to have one of the proletariat do that. These minutes authorized Shank to spend $125 for mailing. And, of course, mailing it is one of the reasons in the federal court because you're using the U.S. mails. And Bear was taking the minutes. Holmes for the court described these flyers in the opinion. The document in question, upon its first printed side, recited the first section of the 13th Amendment, which is the abolition of involuntary servitude, slavery, said that the idea embodied in it was violated by the Conscription Act, and that a conscript, somebody who's been drafted, is little better than a slave. In impassioned language, it intimated that conscription was despotism in its worst form, and a monstrous wrong against humanity in the interest of Wall Street's chosen few. Well, so far, what's wrong with this? It said, Do not submit to intimidation but in form at least confined itself to peaceful measures such as petition for the repeal of the act. Again, all that sounds entirely reasonable to me. And under today's standards, it would be. And Holmes notes that in form at least, it contained itself to peaceful measures, no violence. Holmes goes on. The other printed side of the sheet was headed, Assert Your Rights. Oh my goodness. It stated reasons for alleging that anyone violated the Constitution when he refused to recognize your right to assert your opposition to the draft, and went on. If you do not assert and support your rights, you are helping to deny or disparage your rights, which it is the solemn duty of all citizens and residents of the United States to retain. Again, seems perfectly reasonable. But it got Shank and Bear convicted, and their First Amendment rights were twisted by the court to uphold the convictions. And part of the reason was because it was during a war, which shouldn't matter, but it did. Holmes continues describing this this horrible pamphlet that is a violation of federal law. It described the arguments on the other side as coming from cunning politicians and a mercenary capitalist press, and even silent consent to the conscription law as helping to support an infamous conspiracy. It denied the power to send our citizens away to foreign shores to shoot up the people of other lands, and added that words could not express the condemnation such cold-blooded ruthlessness deserves. Winding up the pamphlet, you must do your share to maintain, support, and uphold the rights of the people of this country. Hey, everything except condemning capitalism in that sounds good to me. And yes, I note the irony of socialists arguing for freedom 
when the system they want to impose is the opposite of that. But we'll leave that aside. So I mentioned the war and how the, and the fear it created. Holmes specifically addressed that. He wrote, We admit, the Supreme Court, in many places and in ordinary times, the defendants, Shank and Bear, in saying all that was said in the circular would have been within their constitutional rights, but the character of every act depends upon the circumstances in which it is done. Okay, that's, that's absurd. He's saying constitutional rights change depending on what's going on in the world or the country. That's hogwash. And thankfully, this was overturned. But remember, the reason we're talking about it is because people still quote this case. They still quote Holmes and his example about yelling fire in a crowded theater, which was not part of the binding part of this case. And this case was overturned anyway, 50 years ago in 69. We're now in 2019. So right after this part about the war and how it might be okay or it would be okay if we weren't at war, since we're at war, it's illegal. First Amendment doesn't apply. This is when we get the statement still quoted by those ignorant of what the Supreme Court cases actually mean and what happens when they're overturned and that don't bother to read them. This is Holmes' actual sentence. The most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man in falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic. So there you go. You can see it's a paraphrase that people use now. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater, but that was the actual sentence in the case. He goes on, the question in every case is whether the words used are used in such circumstances and are of such a nature as to create a clear and present danger, which later became the title of a Tom Clancy book. A clear and present danger that will bring about substantive evils that Congress has a right to prevent. It is a question of proximity and degree. When a nation is at war, many things that might be said in time of peace are such a hindrance to its effort that their utterance will not be endured so long as men fight and that no court could regard them as protected by any constitutional right. Aren't you glad this has been overturned? But this is the case people are citing when they say you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Encouraging people to assert their rights, apparently, according to this unanimous Supreme Court, represents a clear and present danger. Shank wasn't telling people to violently uprise or even to leave the country and ignore the draft board. He was telling them to use the process available, assert your rights. Would they have won? Probably not. But that's not what is the issue. Yet the fear in the war going on, they probably would have lost that case. Heck, Muhammad Ali lost his case when he objected to being drafted in the Vietnam War. But his opposition to that was, as a conscientious objector, it wasn't really. About, it wasn't about free speech. It was about whether or not he had to go go to war under those circumstances. So his case wasn't about encouraging people to assert their rights. His case was him asserting his rights, which he eventually won. But he was had some issues for years and couldn't fight. And Ali had the right to assert his case. And that's all Shank and Bear and the socialists back then in Philadelphia were trying to tell people to do. Assert your rights. But Supreme Court said, um, that's illegal. And I'll, I'll close this podcast by referring back to Tim's article because we all started with this crowded theater stuff, right? Tim says, despite the crowded theater quotes legal irrelevance, advocates of censorship have not stopped trotting it out as the final word on the lawful limits of the First Amendment. As Rotman wrote, for this reason, it's worse than useless in defining the boundaries of constitutional speech. When used metaphorically, it can be deployed against any unpopular speech. Worse, its advocates are tacitly endorsing one of the broadest censorship decisions ever brought down by the Supreme Court. It is quite simply, as Ken White calls it, the most famous and pervasive lazy cheat in American dialogue about free speech. If you didn't already know that, now you know. Don't use that lazy cheat. Call people out when they use it and tell them that case has been overturned and that case was an odious infringement upon everyone's right of free expression. I'm D.K. Williams and this has been The Law, Episode 38, Shank, 
versus the United States, which was overturned by Brandenburg versus Ohio in 1969. We're brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com and please give me some feedback. Let me know what you think. If you if you like or don't like it when I go down the roster of the Supreme Court, I'm afraid that might get tedious. I, I enjoy it, but I can see why it might be tedious. So let me know. And if you're on Facebook and you go to the Facebook page, there's like a rating thing. You can like rate from one to five. Rate me five. Help us get this out there to more and more people. It's America. You can rate me however you want. You can hit me up at Twitter at Blue Carp and on the Facebook page, The Law with DK Williams. And of course, if you want to help keep this podcast going financially, you can donate at paypal.me slash The Law DK Williams. That link is in the show notes as well. So until next week, I'm DK Williams. Freedom is dangerous. Live dangerously.